was asked to be part of a small crew um, that was going to be, um, they said it was like a top secret dig because it was a tomb. It was a Phoenician tomb. Um, and, you know, one of the, the skeletons was um, of a, a, a young girl and, and she had her jewelry still on her. And that was, that was really fascinating. Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I'm your host, Mike Levitt, and I have on the line today um, somebody I'm super excited to, to talk with, and, and I think you're going to love this subject. Um, we're talking to Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott. Um, Dr. Schaefer-Elliott is, is an associate dean of uh, the School of Theology and Leadership and associate professor of Hebrew Bible and Archaeology at Jessup University in Rockland, California. She received her PhD at the University of Sheffield in England. Um, she specializes in the historical, cultural, and social context of ancient Israel and Judah, particularly within domestic contexts. Her major publications include Food in Ancient Judah, Domestic Cooking in the Time of the Hebrew Bible, and editor of The Five-Minute Archaeologist in the Southern Levant. Um, along with numerous chapters, encyclopedia, and dictionary articles, um, essays and papers uh, pre presented on food, uh, households, religion, and gender. She is currently co-editing the TNT Clark Handbook of Food in the Hebrew Bible and Ancient Israel, um, which will be coming out in two, uh, 2021, I understand, as well as the Hunt for Ancient Israel. Um, Dr. Schaefer Elliott is an experienced field archaeologist, and that's going to be fun to talk about and is part of the archaeological excavations at Tel Halif and Tel Abel Beth Makkah in Israel. I probably totally butchered those pronunciations, but welcome to the show, Cynthia. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. <laughs> you are so welcome. You did really well actually pronouncing all those. <laughs> right well on. <laughs> right on. That's fabulous. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show, and, and uh, the, I got to tell you, well, first of all, let me ask you this. I mean, archaeology and specifically um, ancient Israel archaeology is such an interesting, you know, th th that cuts to anybody who's, you know, whether you're of a, um, a Christian or, or a Jew or or of, of any of the Abrahamic faiths. I mean, our society is so based in that kind of um, in in that in the Bible. Um, talk to me about your history, you're, how did you get interested in archaeology and specifically um, ancient Israel? Yeah, you're right. This is one of those subjects that, um, you know, archaeology in general, and then, of course, more specifically, uh, what people might refer to as biblical archaeology. People are usually pretty fascinated with it. I get a lot of questions when um, I meet people on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> and they ask me, you no know doubt. where the Ark of the Covenant is? I say, no, <laughs> I don't. I don't know where it is. Um, but yeah, my history um, with getting into this is, um, you know, I was, I, you know, you and I were in school together. I don't know if I could tell the audience this, but we went to high school together. And I was never a good student, actually. I was more of the social butterfly. I was not concerned about my grades or anything. 
Um, but I grew up in a Protestant Christian home, and I was always fascinated with history, especially ancient history. And I was really fascinated with ancient Israel just from reading my Bible so much. Um, and I was really drawn to more of the Old Testament or what we call the Hebrew Bible. Um, I was really drawn to, you know, the stories in there. And so when I went to college, um, I took, I went to a small liberal arts private um, college in Northern California. And um, I took... Um, you know, I had to take some Bible and theology classes. And one of the first classes I took was an intro to Old Testament class. And it was like, you know how they say kids' brains are like sponges, right? Yeah. You know, and I felt like sitting in that classroom, I felt like my brain was a sponge that was being wrung out in a, in a good way. Like all of these things that I remember learning just kind of came washing over me. Oh, wow. And if I can visualize it in such a way. Um, and it was like, I just had this kind of light bulb moment where I was like, I really love this and I want to keep learning about this. I had no clue that I could would go into the direction I was going. I was not one of those kids or teenagers that knew exactly what I was going to do and was really obsessed with, you know, Indiana Jones or something like that, <laughs> which is what I always, I always get asked that too. Um, so it really wasn't until I was in college that um, I started realizing that I had a real passion for, um, you know, the subject and I hadn't even done any archaeology yet. It was really just the literature and history of ancient Israel. And, and the same professor uh, took um, a class, uh, did a class in Israel every couple years, a historical geography class. And I was, I was intent on going on that right. class. And he also taught a biblical backgrounds class. And that biblical backgrounds class was all about, you know, customs and manners and institutions in the Old Testament. And that was like, okay, I really, really like this. And then we went to Israel and uh, Egypt for this class, and we did a historical geography uh, tour of Israel and Egypt, and we did a, a archaeological excavation for a day at the site of Maresha, where they have all these caves. Now, we found absolutely nothing. <laughs> However, I like to say I found a passion, even though I found wow. nothing in the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which is more valuable, but well, um, I think the passion clearly, clearly, yes, and um, and so for me, there was something. I mean, as as a lover of history, um, there was something about being in the land of where the stories took place and seeing it for myself and touching the artifacts for myself. It was like history had come alive it was a history that you could see that you could touch right and that really i don't know why i don't know how it really resonated with me and so ever since then i've just been pursuing it full force <laughs> that so, is wonderful yeah and so um that's was a long time ago but i'm still doing it you know it's my profession now and i feel so grateful that I get to um, I get to do what I love, and I get to teach other people about it. 
Oh, that's well. That that's a great story. I, I love origin stories and and <laughs> and especially people's passions about it. And and um, it's wonderful to hear that. And it's interesting. Um, uh, kind of, I don't know. Unique is the right word, but America is a unique place in the sense that, like, um, our our history, if you will, like our our oral or or written history, like goes back to, it doesn't go back to the Native Americans. Let me say it that way. It it goes back to Europe. It goes back to to Greece. It goes back to Israel. And so, um, you know, if if we were to, uh, you know, dig, you know, do some archaeological digs here in America, um, it may not resonate the same to to me, for example, as it would to find something in Israel and and seeing that very old and, and very um, just ancient stuff that 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 you hear about. I, I can't imagine what that must have been like. You know, it's when you go on an excavation, and anyone can go can volunteer on excavation as long as you were physically able to do the work, and um, you can pay <laughs> to go. Um, but it, it is really, it, it's hard work. It really is because in in ancient in Israel, in the modern day country of Israel. Um, you know, it's most of the excavations are these very large, they're, they're buried cities and they're what we call, we call them tells, which is basically a, a mound of a layers of a buried city. And so that's, um, that takes a lot of manual labor. It takes a lot of, you know, physical work. And so, you know, it's very different from excavating someplace like even here in the States, if you go to, um, you know, a Native American excavation or if, or if you go to England and you go to even a, a Roman Britain excavation, it's much smaller scale than, than ours. And so, and so you use smaller tools and you've got a smaller space and we're hauling a lot of dirt. <laughs> so it's kind of like my, my, you know, I joke around that it's kind of like a fat camp, <laughs> you know, where you you're working and it's really hard and it's hot and it's summertime and. Well, so, I might have to join you then. <laughs> <laughs> we take all sorts, you know, but right it's, on. it's great because you you are the first person to find or touch this object, this wall, whatever it is, in thousands of years. And it makes all that hard work um, worth it. Oh, that's amazing! Um, when I I mentioned to uh, two of my children that I was going to have you on, and and my fourteen year old daughter just lit up. My sixteen year old son was like, "Whoa, this is so <laughs> cool!" And so I have some questions from them, if that's okay. Um, that would be fantastic. <laughs> so the first one is. Um, from uh, I have two for my daughter. What one is kind of what you describe, but but maybe talk about it a little bit. What is it like to be an archaeologist? What is kind of what what is that like for you? Yeah, well, um, f- for me, my experience. I guess if you were to talk to any others, you know, theirs would be different. Um, I am a professor at a university, and I, so I spend the majority of my year teaching, and I teach uh, about 
you know, ancient Israel in both uh, the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. And also, I also talk about, teach about archaeology. And then I offer classes where I take students with me, kind of like my professor did with me. I do a historical geography class, and that's during the academic year, during our spring break. But then they can also come excavate with me on my digs. And so I take them to Israel, um, and I am a staff member on a couple excavations. Um, one is in southern Israel. It's called Tel Halif. And so you, you hear that word Tel, meaning mound. So the mound of Halif. And that's in southern Israel. And they are both Old Testament era sites. So primarily the Iron Age, which is roughly from 1200 BCE to 586 BCE. So that's a really long time period. But um, for me, so I don't direct an excavation myself. Uh, I am on staff of excavations. So um, in Israel, most of excavations um, are, um, you have like a collaboration of different universities. So you usually have, um, in more recent times, you have a Israeli university that's one of the leaders of the dig. And then there might be other universities um, that are part of that team. And so um, most of the work that we do on the digs really happens in a short amount of time. It really happens in just a matter of weeks. Most excavations in Israel are about four weeks long. They used to be six or eight weeks, but I think the majority of them have shortened it down to four weeks. There are still some out there who do six to eight weeks. And of course, that's a really long time. Um, And so we're really in the field excavating for about four weeks. I take my students um, and we, um, you know, we spend, we get up early, (laughs) really early, (laughs) because we're usually at the site by about 5.15 in the morning. Okay. Because it's, it's hot. You know, and right. it's dry and you want to get your working hours outside done in the early morning hours. So we work uh, at the dig outside doing lots of, you know, heavy manual labor work um, until about lunchtime. And of course, we take breaks. We have breakfast out on the site. It's really quite nice. It's 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 hard work, but it's really a lot of fun. And everyone is, you know, telling stories and singing and stuff like that. Um, So it's a lot of fun. And then after um, we're done for the day, we go back to where we're staying, we have lunch, and then we usually have a couple of hours to to rest, to um, take a shower, (laughs) (laughs) do some laundry. And then in the later afternoon, we do, we, we all meet together again, and we do some of the other work that needs to be done um, with the pottery that we've uncovered over the last few days. Right. And then we, since there's so many different specialists on staff on these excavations, you know, you've got, you can have any number of specialists. You can have people who specialize in different time periods, who specialize in different, you know, objects, um, who are doing more scientific, technological modes of inquiry, um, so you've got all sorts on the dig of who are the staff who are like professors or graduate students in different areas. And then you have, you know, the volunteers, which are often students. Um, so, um, and then we, so we have lectures in the evening a lot of the oh, time cool. because we've got all these great specialists. So why not? 
Right. <laughs> and we do that for, and then you have your weekends off. And we do that for about four weeks. And then what most people don't realize is that that excavation is just like a, a small part of, you know, an archaeologist's time. Um, so usually you spend the rest of the year, especially if you're working at the Israeli university that is in charge of the, mostly in charge of the dig, they have all the stuff goes back to their lab. And they spend the rest of the year, um, all a bunch of different staff members um, spend different parts of the year analyzing all the stuff that they've excavated. Because the whole point is not just the excavating it, it's the analyzing it, writing about it, and publishing it. Right. The publishing it is really important. So um, for someone like me who is not stationed at the Israeli university, on one of my excavations, we we go early and we the Halif one because we're actually not excavating right now. We're just in a publication mode, so we're doing all that analyzing and writing and stuff like that. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's most of your your time is is not on the dig, but it's it's you know teaching, it's analyzing the material. So it's not as glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds just as interesting, like like being able to look at something, you know, that's been dug up and and classify it and and you know analyze it and and try to you know piece together history is is really fascinating. Yeah, because one of the things that you want to do is you want to see where there are parallels at other sites. So, like, say you find this really interesting looking, you know, storage jar, and it's like, okay. At what other sites in Israel have these type of storage jars? So you're always like trying to look for comparisons that way and stuff too. So, um, so yeah, it's like putting a puzzle together in a lot of ways. And you you really only have, and the only pieces that you have really are what the ground gives up. You know what's been left behind, and not everything has been left behind. Not everything preserves for that long. Um, so it, you're really doing a puzzle with, you know, probably only, you, know, you don't exactly have the corner piece. <laughs> yeah. You don't have the corner pieces. pieces. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're trying to make sense of it all of, of, in our case, ancient Israel, you're trying to make sense of, okay, how did, how did, and in this particular city, how did they live? Yeah. Um, you know, what was their administration like? You know, how did they, what did the city look like? Um, what did people do? How did they do it? And so you're trying to kind of catch, you know, make a, a picture or put a puzzle together of, of that particular site. And it is, it's really, really fun. Um, but, you know, you're also doing a lot of hard work and also takes a lot of study and it takes a lot of time and energy. But once people get, you know, once people do it and they're like, oh, yeah, I really like this, then they're really into it. <laughs> right. Well, that kind of leads to, to my son's question, which was, um, you know, what is the most, he says, what's the coolest, but I think he meant most interesting as an archaeologist place that you've been. <laughs> place that I've been. Wow, I've been to a lot of cool places, but I do spend most of my time because I, I in Israel, that's, you know, where I work. Um so let's see. I mean, it, mm, that's a really good question. I get really attached to all the sites I work at. Oh, I bet. Yeah, yeah I get. I do. They they kind of become like a a, a little home. Uh, but the most interesting place, well, gosh, 
Um, that's a really good question. I mean, Israel is fascinating. Um, it's I love taking people there. Well, I think um, it's it's fascinating, and and I think um, you know, and this is again from a total layman's. I've never been there. You know, the history I know is basically from the Bible. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know what? It, but it seems like it is such a more complex interesting place than, than what we kind of the, the, the Sunday school version that we kind of get. Um, not to say that's not yeah. good or anything. It just, it just seems much more complex, like all of history, much yeah. more complex and much more history than what we think. Yeah. And same with the news. If, if you're getting your impression of, of Israel from cable news, <laughs> right? Um, it's probably not <laughs> too good either. Um, it's a wonderful country um, full of just lovely people, the culture, the religions, um, the food, the, um, you know, how they look at the world. I mean, I, I firmly believe that, that travel um, is, a, is a window of education that you can't get anywhere else in any other way. So I strongly encourage people to, if you get a chance to travel to another country or maybe even um, just experience another culture, even in your own region of the world, um, go for it with and just have an open mind and be willing to just sit there and learn because um, it, it's such a valuable experience. And you get to see that, you know, people all over the world um, you know, there's a lot, we have a lot of different, you know, differences, but there's also a lot of things in common too, that people want to, uh, live in peace. They want to raise their children, um, in peacefully, you know, they want to, you know, make a living, <laughs> you know, so, um, but it is, it's just a wonderful country. And, um, I, it's like my, it's like another home for me. Oh, that's, I love that. I, I um, that kind of takes us to um, my the, my last uh, child's question. My daughter again. <laughs> she asked, she asked, "What's the, your biggest or most interesting discovery for you? Like, what was been most interesting that something that you found or been able to to identify, classify, etc. What what's been yeah. that thing for you, if anything? Oh, there is. It's always hard to pick. It's kind of like saying you have a favorite your children. Child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> But, um, you know, there was one excavation, um, it was 2002, it was kind of an off season from this one excavation I was on because we were digging six weeks, so we were digging every other year. So on the off season, the off year, was asked to be part of a small crew um, that was going to be, um, they said it was like a top secret dig because it was a tomb. It was a Phoenician tomb. Uh, and so um, when you excavating skeletal remains, um, especially in Israel, is very tricky. Um, so we had to be very top secret about it because we weren't sure what we were going to find. But um, we did find um, a lot of skeletal remains. Um, and this tomb hadn't been robbed and it was a small little tomb, uh, and we had to take our shoes off when we climbed down into it because the floor was just covered with uh, grave goods. And um, so that was really fascinating. And that's when we got out the dental tools, you know, the small tools, the fine oh, brushes. Oh, how cool. Um, so that was really cool. Um, and, you know, one of the, the skeletons was um, of a... a 
a young girl and for, and she had her jewelry still on her and that was oh. that was really fascinating wow so that and another one are probably the most interesting to me the other one um is actually in the israel museum so in jerusalem there's this you know wonderful museum complex and it's called the Israel Museum. So if you ever get a chance to go, you should definitely spend a whole day there because there's just so much to see. And um, it was, um, it's like, it's called a model shrine. And this one is is kind of round and it has um, on the lid of it, it has a uh, carved into the pottery, um, you know, part molded into the pottery. It's a better way to say it is, um, the head of like a, a lion or, and, um, a very crude looking lion <laughs> and its paws are outstretched in front of it. And underneath it are molded into the clay faces of, of humans. And it, and I found my friend and I found that on our first excavation and um, it's in the Israel museum. So I go and I see it every time I'm in the Israel museum. That's amazing. That is so cool. Wow. All right. Well, so Matthew and Rachel, there are your questions. Thank you for participating. (laughs) And and I know they'll be thrilled to hear those answers. Thank you for the questions, Matthew and Rachel. (laughs) So, so often like it, it seems to me and, and, that that history is kind of divided into you know two categories. There's like the textual history, what we read, what is passed down, um, and then there's archaeology, which is um, you know what you're doing, which is kind of going out and and you know trying to trying to solve puzzles and and find out maybe more day to day or such. Mm-hmm. T- talk to me a little bit about maybe the strengths and weaknesses of of each of those kind of histories, or or if that's a bad category. <laughs> No, that's a great question. I wish you know more people would ask that question <laughs> because <laughs> we tend to we tend to give uh, texts a lot more um, weight than we do archaeology. Yeah, and as you know, someone who also studies you know ancient texts too, because I do both biblical studies of the Hebrew Bible and archaeology, um, we you might've heard the phrase, you know, the victors always write the history. Right. And, you know, and, and that's, you know, a very good point. And the, the larger point of that being um, this idea of historiography, you know, the historiography being um, it's not just history. We like to think of history as, oh, it's just the facts, right? right. Well, but it's not really. Histor- historiography is about Okay, who gets to in, decide what's included and what's excluded? How uh, is this so-called history told in what form? Um, what is their purpose or motivation for writing? So um, is it just one person or is it many people? Is it happening at one time or is it happening over a large amount of time? And are they looking, you know, it, what's their, their, are they looking at the past in order to make understand you know, understand the present better or, you know, so there's all sorts of questions that we, we need to keep in mind when we're studying ancient texts, including uh, scripture, because, you know, scripture is really this, um, you know, it's, it's not just a book, it's a collection of books. It's an anthology. Mm -hmm. It's its own little library. And each book is really a collection of material. And so we need to, you know, keep in mind, okay, who wrote this? When did they write it? How did they write it? 
Why did they write it? What sources did they use? Um, you know, what is the why is a really big thing too, because everyone has a motivation for writing. Right. You know, whether it's it whether you it's good for you and bad for somebody else or your perspective versus your enemy's perspective. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, you know, there's all those things to keep in mind with texts. With archaeology, you also get this misconception that, you know, the ground doesn't lie. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true, but we also have to remember that not everything that was present then is going to be found on the ground. You know, some of these right. things might have eroded or maybe people took them these things with them when they left. Um, maybe they were influenced by other people groups. Um, you know, maybe you just haven't been digging in the right spot, yeah. <laughs> you know? So there's all these different variables, um, which when you're doing both textual um, studies and archaeology that you have to keep in mind. Uh, and so when we do archaeology of ancient Israel, and pro and probably a lot of your, your listeners might be familiar with the term biblical archaeology, and, and that's a pretty popular term to describe archaeology of ancient Israel, you know, and yeah. the land of Israel and the Israelites and their different time periods that are represented in the, in the Bible. And, um, but most of us in the discipline that some people would call biblical archaeology, we don't really, we don't call it that because archaeology and biblical studies are separate disciplines. Right. Right. And you never, whatever archaeology you're doing, you, you never have, if there's a text associated with your archaeology, you never, you know, have that text in one hand while you're, while you're digging. Okay. And that was actually right? one of my questions. How do you, you know, because obviously, you know, these places actually existed and, and we read about them and mm -hmm. how do you, how does a scholar deal with that? So that's interesting that, that you try to separate them completely. Well, you know, some people try to separate them absolutely completely. Some people try to merge them together completely you know, me, I, I'm kind of of the persuasion, well, yes, they're separate disciplines, but um, what we do is very interdisciplinary. So we excavate and we say, okay, this is what we found. Is there reference to it in any text, whether it's the Hebrew Bible or any other ancient Near Eastern texts from Assyria or Babylon or e Egypt or Ugarit or whatever, you know, we, we look, we look for texts in general. We look for art in general. We look for um, modern analogies that we do. So ethnography, if I don't know if you've ever heard of ethnography. No, so what within, is that? Yeah. Within cultural anthropology, ethno it's, it's like you're, you're um, people watching. Okay. You know, you go to the airport or you go to the mall and you just sit there and you watch people. Um, ethnography is kind of like that, but, you know, much on, on a much bigger scale, you are, you're going to a culture or society and you're watching them mm. and observing them and asking questions and you're living with them. And you're trying to like, say, figure out, okay, this, this society does things this way. And isn't this interesting? And, but in, of course we can't do that with ancient Israelites. So <laughs> what we do is called ethno archeology, span where we go and we observe 
maybe modern traditional groups that would be similar, we think, to how ancient Israel might have done some things. Oh, that's interesting. That would be like, you know, the Bedouins, the people, the nomadic people that are still in Israel, the Bedouins that live in tents. Um, some of uh, some of them still live in tents, and they're herders. You know, they right. uh, they're ag- pastoralists, and so you, you know you could go watch them, the women bake bread, and say, okay, this is interesting. I wonder if we can get some parallels to how ancient uh, their ancient ancestors might have made bread. So is it interest? Is it is it similar to like maybe somebody who studies language, like they take a a language of somebody and 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 can. You try to trace it back to earlier languages that maybe we yeah. don't know about. Is it right. somewhat similar to that? Yeah, somewhat similar to that. I mean, you have to remember that no cultures stay static. Right. But um, you you can probably glean some good information um, from these traditional societies. So, so the, and the reason why we we say we don't dig with you know our Bible in one hand and our trowel, which is our in, an instrument, in yeah. the other hand. It is because you know the texts are are often written much later, often much much later than the events that they're talking about. Yeah, right. Because this is a pre-literate society, so you don't have you know court reporters <laughs> hanging out, or and no one has an iPhone to record anything. <laughs> so right. So these and this is typical of the time. Um, so this is not you know something to to be upset about. This is just the way things were until somewhat recently. Um, So we have to remember that most people didn't know how to read and write and that the people who did were usually part of the elite class, usually lived in cities um, and were writing usually later than the events and sometimes much, much later. So we don't want to say like, oh, hey, I found this this storage pot and it happens to be from the time of Solomon and it just happens to be, you know, in Jerusalem. So therefore it must be Solomon's storage jar. You know, <laughs> right. so a lot of those big jumps have been made. Um, I think unintentionally, you know, historically, you know, that's just kind of how archaeology was. It was always trying to connect with these big figures of the Bible. Where archaeology, though, you know, and and vice versa, you're not using archaeology to prove or disprove anything. You're just doing archaeology. And you're just doing biblical studies. And both of those things are going to use any other tools at their disposal, whether it's archaeology, other ancient Near Eastern texts, whether it's ethnography or ethnoarchaeology, or iconography, which is study of, of you know, art, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where if you're looking at a, a statue, <laughs> you know, it's right. like, okay, that's there. This is important. Um, so we want to use all the tools at our disposal. It's a very interdisciplinary discipline, both biblical studies is and archaeology is. So we want to allow these disciplines to do their thing. <laughs> right. But we also want to make use of whatever tools at our that are at our disposal. And right now, especially within archaeology and within biblical studies, you know, there's this uh, there's a big rise in the advancement of of science and technology, hmm. like drones. All excavations have drones now. Okay. 
And that's been so awesome because <laughs> <laughs> we can get these great bird's eye view of the site like every oh, yeah. day um, and see, okay, look, you can see. And usually you just like do you're that unmasking the map. Yes, exactly. Usually you just get that with the final photographs at the end of the season, but we can do that, you know, every day if we wanted. Um, so there's lots of great advancements going on. Um, and we want to use everything at our disposal. Wow. What, um, what has been something maybe that most people would be surprised about if they were learning about, um, uh, ancient Israel, if they're learning about this, this biblical archeology span that, that maybe uh, a misconception or something that, that, they think they know or maybe not know. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about history. I'm thinking about, you know, the, the two kingdoms split and how mm-hmm. that happened or, or anything. Like what, what, what is something that maybe um, somebody is um, not or, 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 or misunderstands about the history of, of that time? Yeah, that's another good question. Wow. Um, well, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> I bet that's true. You know, um, And and I think that's partly the fault of of scholars um, because, you know, not a lot of scholars, some scholars are great at this and some scholars aren't about getting their information out to the wider population. Hmm. Um, So I would say some things that are, you know, confused or misunderstood. Um, Well... Let's see here. Um, there's a big discussion even still about, you know, the whole when Israel becomes a monarchy, first with Saul and then with David and Solomon. So when it's a united monarchy. Right. Right. That And that's what, you know, we, we call the Iron, Iron One, mostly the Iron One period. Okay. Um, that is a really still kind of confusing time. Like there's still a lot of questions um, and not a whole lot of answers. Is that because there's not much to find for that time? Yeah. One, because the biblical text talks about, you know, especially the reigns of David and Solomon, right? Mm -hmm. They talk about their reigns as just like the most wonderful thing (laughs) in the world. Right. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that it was, um, it was a huge kingdom. It was peaceful and prosperous and that drew and and people have this in this in their minds that Jerusalem was this big grand city during the time of David and Solomon and archaeology is showing us that well <laughs> maybe exaggerated writers, you know had a way of you know massaging <laughs> the reality right. of it it was probably much smaller in scale. Jerusalem was a really kind of a small city, um, you know, because because we get so fixated on, you know, the history of this part of the world, for most people, like you said, comes from what they know about the Bible, from the right. Testament in particular. Um, but Israel was a really small <laughs> character actor on the stage of the ancient Near East. I mean, but because right. of the biblical text, we think it just looms large in our imagination and in our minds. And 
on in the white in the whole we're shocked in, that they're taken over all the time by the Assyrians. Yes, like, exactly. <laughs> they're shocked that you know this mighty kingdom allows all these people to take over them. It's like, well, they're a, they're small kingdoms. They're actually pretty insignificant most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time on the wider ancient Near Eastern stage. And you know, when all these other empires take over what I call, you know, ancient superpowers, they don't take over Israel and Judah because it's the most beautiful, wonderful place and it has all these natural resources and it's where all the cool kids are. Right. You know, it, they get taken over because that little strip of land, what we know as Israel, uh, served as a land bridge between Egypt and Mesopotamia. And the two main trade routes that go from Egypt to Mesopotamia go through that land bridge because okay. you've got, the only other way is the Mediterranean, which is rough and horrible. And, and you'd have to go down the entire, you know, Western coast of the continent of Africa and then up around through the Indian ocean and then into the Persian Gulf, you know, and if you even Not an exciting it. journey. <laughs> Not an exciting journey if you're trying to. <laughs> or maybe too exciting. Too exciting if you even survive it. It would take forever. And whatever goods you're trying to trade would be rotten. Yeah. The only other option would be to go through the Arabian Peninsula. And unless you're one of the tribes from that peninsula and know where the water is, that's not a good idea either. Mm. So the two main trade routes that would go from Egypt to Mesopotamia go through this little strip of land that we know as Israel uh, and Judah. And so in order to control, to be in power over the entire ancient Near East, you have to control the trade. And in order to control mm -hmm. the trade, you have to control the trade routes. And in order to control the trade routes, you have to control Israel. Mm. Okay. So that little- That's why they- Yeah. That's interesting. Geography is so important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. It yeah. seems to, it still is. <laughs> it is. And, you know, that just that little strip of land. And we 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 have this huge collection of, of literature from there. And, and that's what we're familiar with. But there's so much other little literature from the ancient Near East. Yeah. I mean, that's just like a drop in the bucket. Right. So, uh, so you spent, um, you know, it seems like a lot of your professional work um, talking specifically about um, food, and yeah. which is interesting because the Bible talks a whole lot about food, <laughs> especially in the the Old Testament. And and I'm curious what what have you discovered about um, maybe more um, family relations and 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 how the Israelite people lived, um, and specifically as it as it pertains to food. Yeah. So the the, mater the stuff we find about food in the Old Testament, um, there is a lot of stuff about food, um, but most of it is it most of it's in passing, right? Mm. It's not it's not unless you're talking about the the cash route, the dietary laws that you find right. in Leviticus, and then again in Deuteronomy, um, you get that kind of list there, um, but. There's not a whole lot of explanation. <laughs> right. And most of the other stuff and mention of food and, and or or ingredients or foodstuffs or what have you or meals are are in passing. So they're not the point of the story or the poem or 
the proverb or whatever genre right. it is. Um, At and best, so, they're used as a symbol, maybe. Yeah, there's a lot of symbolism, right? Or maybe there's a story that's set at a feast or something like that. So you don't, you know, and and the authors never, you know, um, they very rarely give you a detailed, you know, menu. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I right. wish they did, but they don't. <laughs> um, and so we get little bits here and there. So that's and they don't why tend to last for centuries. Do, do, does food it kind of <laughs> deteriorates quickly? It does exactly. <laughs> so when we're excavating, um, and really, there's been with the whole increase of science and technology and archaeology, we've been able to do this much better. Um, but you know, food doesn't survive. You know, it, it yeah. erodes. Um, it it spoils, it wastes away. Um, and so sometimes though, we do find um, carbonized seeds or grains, um, animal bones. Uh, so we have branches of within archaeology called zooarchaeology, which uh, zooarchaeologists are people who specialize in animal bones. And then you have microarchaeologists or botanical archaeologists, you know, there's different names for them that specialize in the, you know, botanical matter. And so when we find or carbonized seeds, we can, we have to be very careful with them. And then we can put them as samples and send them off to be carbon-14 uh, tested, which helps us with getting a, a really secure date of the time that that grain was you know, was in or that seed. So we have to, for studying food, we have to use, again, it's really interdisciplinary. We have to use a lot of different things. We have to use the Hebrew Bible. We have to use archaeology. We have to use other ancient Near Eastern texts, iconography, ethnography, you know, all those things that we were just talking about are really um, important. Uh, so again, trying to put that puzzle together, you're using all sorts of different um resources. And so, um, you know, when we look at food, I, you, you want to think about food and, okay, are we talking about elite people like kings and priests? Um, or are we talking about everyday people? And if we're talking about either one of those, are we talking about an everyday meal versus a special occasion meal, like Mm. a feast? Right. So we do get some descriptions of like Solomon's table in, you know, the feasts that he would have. And, and it really, again, you have to keep in mind that, you know, our, our authors are also trying to show you, you know, how, how prosperous Solomon right. is. And so, um, well, you, know, and you also get kind of the, the sacrificial meals, you know, the things that the priest sure. would eat at sacrifice mm-hmm. times and, and things like right, that. Right. Because the sacrifices are, portion depends on the sacrifice but portions of the sacrifice are are just burnt and then the other rest of it is is given to the priests or given to the priests and the person who presented it and so mm. a sacrifice is often um, the base of a feast meal um, okay. and so when we look at food and how people lived um, your average ancient Israelite you know they would have been subsistence level farmers agro-pastoralists, so people who were farmers and had herds of sheep and goats. Um, And they would have been really dependent upon those animals. So they didn't eat meat very often. 
um, on a daily basis. Meat was usually reserved for special occasions like a feast or, you know, a feast that would include a sacrifice, um, whether it's a special event like a wedding or whether it's a special, um, like a, a high holy day, a holiday, um, a religious, you know, holy day. Um, so meat was usually reserved for those occasions unless, um, unless you needed to cull your herd for some reason or, um, you know, you, you needed, you had an animal that you're like, okay, well, <laughs> it's on its way it, out. <laughs> right, right. It's, it can't, it, it can't uh, you know, help, help me with the, um, you know, with the farm. So it needs, right. to, needs to go. Yeah, because you, as, as a household, you would have been dependent upon your animals for their secondary products. So you would use their, mo- and they would have mostly sheep and goats. Um, you would use their milk mm-hmm. to make, for milk, for m- different dairy products. You would use their fleece uh, to make clothes. You would use their dung. You would dry it into patties and you would use it for fuel for your ovens. Um, yeah, wow. It, or to fertilize your fields. Yeah. Um, so you were pretty dependent upon those animals. And so you would, you wouldn't eat, you know, if, if you had a hankering for lamb chops, well, then you would just have to wait until the next feast. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the meat was not an everyday fare like it is today. Okay. Um, yeah. So when you, when you do read in the Old Testament, when it talks about what animals you can and can't eat, like, okay, that's good to know, but how often are they actually having the opportunity, you know, to eat? you know, these animals, um, unless you are like Solomon and you have, you know, abundance of food. Um, so most people, um, uh, your diet was heavily based on cereals. So we estimate about 50% of their daily caloric intake would have been taken from, um, cereals, grains prepared in in different ways, primarily as bread, um, so that's why you get the whole, you know, my daily bread type yeah. of thing. Um, and interesting though, that the, the Hebrew word for food, for bread is lechem and lechem became synonymous with just food. So when we're translating Hebrew and you see lechem, you're like, okay, are they talking about food in general or are they talking about bread specifically? Right. Wow. Because that's how much their diet was based on bread and even you know, towns with the name in it. So Beit Lechem or Bethlehem is house of bread. Oh, wow. Yeah, That's so interesting. Bre- yeah, bread's super, super important, but it's also not very nutritious. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, seasonal fruits and vegetables. Um, the Hebrew Bible actually doesn't talk about vegetables very much at all. No, um, it doesn't. And, and when it does, it's like, eh, I'd rather have meat. <laughs> if we could. <laughs> um, sounds so, like yeah. sounds like keto people here today. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but a, a, one thing that people don't realize too is that there would have been a lot of legumes. Mm. Yeah, a lot okay, of legumes, yeah. uh, which are high in protein. So, uh, and they store well, and they're quick to prepare, and they're you know they're they're pretty. And so stews would have been. Um, a, an evening meal really across the wider ancient Near East. We do have um, recipes from uh, Babylon 
that um, have been found. They're called the Yale Culinary Tablets and they're stored at Yale, hence the name. Um, and they have all these recipes. Uh, oh, cool. And a significant amount of them are for different cheeses and breads and stews and stews made out of, you know, vegetables, stews with meat, some fresh, some not so fresh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I think of it as, you know, very seasonal, you know, what's what, and, it, and in living in a land that has a lot of drought, um, you know, that would have been, you'd been subsistence level, you know, and sometimes subsistence level being, um, subsistence level not so bad and subsistence level like really bad. Like yeah. We've had a drought for five years and we're having a hard time, you know, finding seeds to to plant and all that fun stuff. So well and, and we and we definitely see some of that those stories in the in the Bible, yes, you know, yeah. of of, mm-hmm. of um of those droughts. Um so that kind of takes me to another, I guess more biblical question. Um you know, at, at bottom, the Bible seems to be um, telling a story of of um, God's relationship to man, like like the, our our hum, humans' relationship to God and how He affects this people that we know as the Israelites. Mm-hmm. Um, what did do we know from archaeology whether you know, um, and I don't know, somebody on a subsistence level maybe wouldn't, but, but did the people see themselves in that same context? Do they see themselves as a chosen people, as a, um, you know, as, as part of a larger narrative at all? Wow. Gosh, you have good questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, thank you. (laughs) Well, all we really have to go off of you know, is, is the text, you know, archaeology. Right, because they, they didn't write this stuff down. Yeah, most people, I mean, it, it, that's a, a discussion that goes on how much and at what time periods do people really, you know, the general population, I should say, how much literacy did they have? And that would, of course, depend on if you're a male or a female. Um, mm-hmm. Probably more men of the family were more literate. But to to what extent, you know, is is some people say, oh, they were more literate than we thought they were, and others think, oh, well, they probably weren't as literate. And again, it depends on the time period. But um, you know, when when you think about the entirety of the Hebrew Bible, right, and definitely you you can't separate the theological um, lens, right, in it. Um, I, there's there's a few points I think I would want to make here. One is in the wider ancient Near East, of which Israel was a part of, the way they, all of them, saw the world was through a theological lens. So okay. everything in that world was seen as spiritual, right? So hence why you have, in most of these civilizations, you have a pantheon or collection of deities, both gods and goddesses. And and all these gods and goddesses had something that they were in control over in their particular region. Like, so, you know, and in the literature that we see both, you know, some some in the Hebrew Bible and in the wider ancient Near East, like Babylon, Assyria, and Ugarit, and Egypt, you know, part of the rituals that are con- are conducted are to 
are to appease the deities that are that they thought were out there. And so you do see some of that in in Israel too. So so that that common lens was throughout the wider ancient Near East that everything in that world was spiritual, right? So I wouldn't be surprised to think that the Israelites, you know, saw themselves in that way too, you know, with their, but one of the things that is always a matter of discussion is because if you read the Old Testament closely, you see that, you know, Israel was supposed to worship God alone, but they failed at it miserably yeah. <laughs> most of the time. Most of the time. Right? You know, that they're part of this, you know, wider ancient Near Eastern world that worshiped many gods. And in particular, the ones that, you know, are really popular are fertility deities, because again, you're living off the land and reproducing both in the land and in the animals and with people is really important to your survival. So we read in the Hebrew Bible that the Israelites were supposed to be in this covenant relationship with God and worship God alone, but that they they failed at this a lot of the times and that they did worship some of these other deities and two in particular that you hear a lot of are Baal, sometimes pronounced as Baal Mm -hmm. and Asherah, both are fertility deities. Um, So we know that they had that lens of seeing everything through the spiritual lens, right? This God is in charge of, of rain. So we're going to pray to this God. And we're going to pray to Yahweh. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right. We're going to hedge our bets here a little bit. <laughs> exactly. Um, but the biblical authors are very clear in saying you weren't supposed to do that. And that's why, you know, we're getting punished with exile. Right. Sort of thing. Okay. So archaeologically, we do find evidence of um, religion. Um, we find, depends what type of environment you're in, like if you're in a house or if you're in a temple, shrine, some sort of professional religious center, um, we find, you know, people worshiping, um, there's these figurines, your, your, your Old Testament will um, usually interpret it as, the, the word teraphim is usually interpreted as idol. And we tend to imagine them as these big, you know, golden, you know, six foot, eight foot, 10 foot, you know, idols. Right. But they're actually really small. They're like little, we call them figurines. They're made out of pottery. They're as, you know, big as your hand. Um, But we find them, and particularly in houses, and even more so in a particular type of these figurines in in Judah. Um, So whether... The Israelites saw themselves in the special way that the biblical authors write about. That's hard to determine, you know, yeah. um, unless we find start finding, you know, inscriptions where people are saying things that are similar um, right. to way the biblical authors do. But we also know that you know authors, especially ancient authors, are are not 
And even still today, again, that goes back to your motivation for writing in the first place. Not only are you writing to chronicle or document the past in a certain way, but you want that past to be viewed and taken in as part of your identity in the future. Right. So whenever we see writing, you have to remember writing isn't just about documenting the past. It's it's about, it's about projecting who we want to be our identity into the future as well. Well, And and you can see, I think, um, you know, I think about, you know, modern Jewish people, you know, they, they have a lot of of rituals and, and, you know, some Mm -hmm. are more religious than others, but, but, you know, that, that, claim to go back to that time that that have kept their society, kept their culture alive for mm-hmm. centuries and and through through all of the, you know, um, turmoil that that the people has gone sure. through. And mm-hmm. and, you know, so I that's what I was kind of curious about is is, you know, those rituals, do we see evidence of of those happening and um and that being a big part of people's lives? Yeah, sometimes you do, and 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 sometimes again, it's hard to interpret what you're finding. I mean, mm, one of the jokes yeah. in, in archaeology is is that if you don't know what it is, it's cultic, <laughs> it's religious. Right. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, that's great. It is. It's pretty funny, and and sometimes it's true. You know, but you know, we just have these pieces that were left that people left behind in the dirt. You know, and it's been buried for thousands of years. And, um, you know, it's identity is is such an important thing, in particular in later Israelite tradition um, when they're coming back from exile. You know, that's when identity is always important. Identity and ethnicity is always important, but in particular at that point in time Hmm. when they're trying to like figure out, figure things out. Yeah, and, and they're collecting all of this, these this material that has been written, and then writing down stuff that hadn't been written yet, um, and collecting it all together, which eventually becomes what we know as the Old Testament. Okay, well, we're talking to Dr. Cynthia Schaefer Elliott, and, and I just have a couple more questions, and I sincerely appreciate your time. This has been absolutely fascinating for me. <laughs> it's been so good. Um, one of the so just maybe three more questions. One, sure. the, um, um, it's so unlike a lot of like scientific um, work, like people will go and they'll have like a you know maybe a proposition or a theory, and then they try to prove it. There, uh, archaeology seems to be so different. And I'm wondering when you when you go to a dig or when you're starting a, a, a project, um, do you have kind of a, a theory in mind, or is it totally what comes? as it comes and, you know, how, how does the, you know, how do you try or, or, you know, I guess imposing your will or theory onto what's happening Mm -hmm. um, at at a dig or, or at a site or, or when you're doing scholarly work like that, how does that affect what you do? Sure. Well, you, you, when, before you even start the excavation, you, it's not like you just pick a place out of anywhere. I mean, you're, you're picking a place that and a lot of sites have been excavated and there are still some that quite haven't been um, but you're picking a place that um, fits your research agenda or your mm-hmm. research agenda is fitting that place so like let's say the one of the sites I'm on right now 
um, is called Tel Abel Beit Ma'aka, and that's in northern, northern Israel. And the archaeologists, their research agenda was, we want to know more about this region of Israel during this certain time period. Go, okay. What are some questions we think we might be able to answer um, with digging at the site? Well, um, so when you start, and then you start digging and you can't (laughs) dig an entire site, you know, and, and even still you've got these, the layers of different time periods and, you know, our layer is what we're interested in is the Iron Age, but this site could have time periods after that and you still have to excavate through them and you still collect and document. And that's why excavations take so long is because it's, you're really meticulous in your recording of everything, including the time periods that you're not interested in because someone else might be interested in it. Right. And you want to save it. A separate thing, like, like the dig and, and the work is separate from what your, um, what, what your agenda or theory is about it. Right. You you might have some big research questions, like some overall research questions, like, okay, well, how did Abel, the site, how did Abel, um, which is a pretty big site, how did it fit into the region, um, particularly with, um, you know, being so close to the modern day border with Syria and, and as far as like the ancient neighbors of um, Damascus. Um, so, you know, what was their relationship? You know, how how Israelite were they? <laughs> you right, know? right. Were they also, you know, um, you know, have some people from from their northern neighbors there? And one of the texts that this site is mentioned in is in Second Samuel twenty, where um, there is a rebellion against King David led by a man named Sheba. And Sheba and his little guerrilla warfare group flee and they lock themselves in the city of Abel because it has a wall around it with a gate. So they lock, they take over the city and they lock themselves in it. And David's commanders come and surround the city and they're going to destroy the city to get to this, you know, this rebel. Uh-huh. And the wise woman of Ma'aka, you know, Abel, Beth Ma'aka is the name of the site. The wise woman of Ma'aka, I always imagine it like Monty Python style, you know, Holy <laughs> Grail with the French guys right. above the city walls. And she says, what are you, and this is my paraphrase, of course. And she says, what are you doing? And they said, well, the rebel's in there. We got to get him. She's like, just give me a minute. And she goes, <laughs> sometime later, she comes back and she throws something over the wall and trigger warning. It's the head of Sheba. <laughs> and so she and the people, because she, she says to them, why are you destroying a city that's that's peaceful in Israel? And they're like, well, the rebels in there. So, you know, you have these big research, you have these over, you know, kind of umbrella type research questions. Right. But of course, you don't know what's in the ground. And that's going to really, you know, help direct which direction you go in. So like once they started excavating at Abel, you know, they found a lot of, you know, religious cultic type stuff. And that's like, this is great because of the story in, in second Samuel 20, that kind of connects with that. Um, same at Halif, my site in, in the South, uh, 
we know that, you know, a lot of houses are, are built along the city wall and we wanted to do what we call household archaeology, where we are just excavating the houses to learn how everybody lived back then. Mm. And so that was our agenda. And we, we planned where to dig based on what we already knew of other sites that had houses. Okay. Where's, where's the, where's the, what's the most likely place that we're going to find a house? And city wall. So, um, so yeah, so you might have some over, you know, big research questions, but of course, as you're excavating, that's going to help direct, you know, which way you go to. Okay. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, and then, um, and then before my last question, if people want to learn more about this, if they if find this interesting, like what are some good resources? How how can they? What are, what's it, where's a good place that people can go and and learn about um, you know this this history and this and specifically the archaeology behind it? Right. Well, there's no shortage <laughs> <laughs> of resources related to the archaeology of ancient Israel and Judah. Um, I'm thinking of of, of a couple. Um, you know, sources. Well, one is is a magazine. Uh, it's called Biblical Archaeology Review. Okay. Uh, also shortened to BAR, B-A-R, Biblical Archaeology Review. And that is a, a great resource um, that is all about archaeology of the lands of Bible. And um, you have lots of different archaeologists in both New Testament and Hebrew Bible scholars who contribute to it. Uh, myself included, um, and you know they're they're colorful articles, and, and it's not pictures are be, always good. Yeah, and, it, and pictures <laughs> are always good, and it's not going to be super technical. Okay, right. So it's and it's going to be something that you know people who have you know little experience or or knowledge on the subject can easily read it. My mother in law gets it. Okay, um, I get it. <laughs> so, right on. Um, that's of course podcasts are great right now. You know, um, there's um, there's lots of great podcasts out there. There's one about the Bible um, that I think is particularly good. It's called The Bible for Normal People. Okay, um, and I've been on on that one before. Um, it's one of the few that I listen to regularly. Um, let's see other sources. Um, lots of great, you know. I guess it depends on how technical you want books, handbooks. There, um, there's a website. Well, I guess I, the, I, I, you know, if, if I guess my concern is, I, I'd like to send people to to a place that is maybe reputable, where you know it's sure. not going to be like conspiracy yeah. theories and stuff. <laughs> yes, and I appreciate that so much. Um, there is a website called Bible Odyssey, uh, which is a resource put out by uh, one of our big academic institutions called the Society of Biblical Literature. Okay. Um, and they do videos, short videos. Um, they do, they have, you know, images and little articles and stuff like that. So Biblical Archaeology Review, the Bible for Normal People, um, Bible Odyssey. I think those are some three pretty good, strong, good. Um, you know, solid resources okay. to go to. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. Last question, and, and kind of maybe more on a personal note. How how has your work? Um, you talked about you know growing up in in a family of faith, and and um, you know this has kind of been a big part of your professional life. But how has your professional life affected your um, your faith itself? 
Yeah, another great question. Um, you know, I would say, well, there's no way it couldn't. Right, <laughs> could well, absolutely. It, you know, um, and you know, and everyone's faith journey is is, is different. Um, I spend my life studying the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, and the and its world, and it's really, of course, helped Scripture come alive to me. And um, but also looking looking at that and seeing how the Israelites viewed the nature of God and their relationship with God, and you know, even in that kind of ancient mindset, you know, some of the the beautiful things that are in there, the care for um, for justice, for the widow, the orphan, for the foreigner, for, um, you know, it not being just about what you do, but about the heart behind it. Um, and so for me being an academic, it's easy to get kind of sucked into the whole academic side of things. And so, but I find great beauty in that as well. And I think, Something that's been a lesson for me is that, you know, when people think about your faith journey and they think, oh, you know, I, 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 own, I use my Bible for devotionals and, and that's really it. And I think, oh, but I get so much joy and learning about the nature of God, not just through looking at it from a devotional perspective, but also using my mind Mm-hmm. And also saying, okay, what can I learn about how these Israelites, the authors of this story, are are portraying the nature of God through this story? What can I learn, not just about them, but what about the nature of God? And how does that impact my life today and how right. I view the nature of God? So it's, you know, it's it's pretty complex. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but as um, it should be, honestly. I mean, I mean, yeah, that, that's, I that's part so. of it. Part of the journey is, is you know, is sometimes we got to stop drinking milk and eat some meat, you know? Exactly. And sometimes that's hard, I think, for, um, for, for some people to say, oh, well, you know, you're just looking at it with your mind. I go, yeah, but that's not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, not that it doesn't ever get to the heart. Of course it does. But I think we've been so focused on heart matters um, that – especially within, you know, my faith communities, um, there's very little actual, you know, education when it, when it comes to scripture and it comes to theology that's yeah. kind of been cast aside for the matters of the heart, for the more devotional perspective. And so now we're seeing the result of that within our church communities where people have very little knowledge of their own sacred scripture. Yeah, and and the consequences of that, in my right. opinion, are are terrible because maybe they they find something out and they don't have answers, right. um, whether it's on a, an apologetic level mm-hmm. um, or um, you know you know everybody's faith journey is difficult um, because it's life and it, that's mm-hmm. that's what it is and and uh, you know when when if if you don't have all those components, heart, mind. Um, and, and, you know, might kind of as one, 
if you have a weakness, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be found. And, right. and, and, and you see people leaving the church, you see, uh, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, that, that maybe think of, of God as the great giver of all things, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's, that's not exactly what he wants our relationship to be in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, I think the, you sing in one of the popular word right now is deconstruction and you see, um, a lot of people deconstructing and, and, and one reason could be from people I've talked to is, is that there has been very little, you know, education, uh, within faith communities about their sacred scriptures. And Mm -hmm. so then, and then they're confronted with either some event or some new knowledge or something. And it just kind of, they, they have the slippery slope idea in their mind. Well, if it's this is this way, then it all must be this way, which I right. Think well, they feel like they've been lied to their whole right. life. And which is, you know, that slippery slope thing is, is a fallacy, I think. But yeah, um, but so you see that whole deconstruction thing and then you and you see a lot of people being upset about people deconstructing. And I think actually, no, that's a good thing because they're 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 claiming it for their own. Yeah. You know, that's that's wonderful. Well, uh, Cynthia, I can't thank you enough. This has You're been so welcome, Mike. I, I, I hope we can do it again. I feel like we've just scratched the surface, and and I have so many other questions, but but you know, time is far spent. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a great you know archaeology little analogy there. We're just scratching the surface. So. Absolutely, absolutely. So, <laughs> thank you for for coming on. Let's do it again if you don't mind. Sometime I would not mind at all. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. We've been talking to Dr. Cynthia Schaefer Elliott. Um, about biblical archaeology and and all of its uh, greatness and, and interest. Um, you've been. My name is Mike Levitt, and you've been listening to And If Love Remains. 